All right, can I have your attention, please? Hello, Fullerton. Hello. Hello. You're supposed to say, hello, Zoot. Let's try this again. Hello, Fullerton. Hello, Zoot. Very nice. Thank you so much. So I am... Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. Today on 501c3BS, you get a free ticket to the G3X conference. In August 2018, I was asked to take over as Interim Director for the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mihalo School of Business and Economics. Susan Cadwallader, the Director, wanted to take a step back to focus on her research. I had been an advisor there for four years, and longtime listeners know that they sponsor this podcast. The timing of my hire was because the Center was producing its annual conference for the sector. It was a large undertaking. At the helm, I was able to make some tweaks to the conference, tweaks I thought would make it more successful. We changed the name of the conference from the Summer School for Nonprofits to G3X with a mission of growing excellent and exciting exempt organizations in the region. That's where the three X's originate. The conference was an overwhelming success. I audio recorded most of the conference for you, the listeners, and we'll be using some of these recordings for this season of 501c3BS. This episode is one of two live panels we did answering the questions from the field. I hope you like it. And just a quick follow-up. After the conference, I have been asked to stay on as the director of the center, a job that I'm really enjoying. Thank you, Cal State Fullerton. And now, on with the show. Three esteemed guests, if I count myself. (laughs) We have two esteemed guests here with me. This is Sally Lawrence. She is from AFP. Orange County. She'll be doing a session after this. AFP is the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and it's it's a group of people whose main job is fundraising. To uh, it's a support group, so we can cry on each other's shoulders, really. <laughs> but no, also they do the CFRE, which is the the certification for fundraising executives. Um, that's the kind of fundraising CPA. Uh, I guess the best way to explain that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a CFRE. I'm proud of it. 2011, I haven't re-upped yet, so oh, I'm out. every three years you're out. I, I'm out of stock. <laughs> I'm out of stock. But, um, and then, of course, you all met Francis earlier, Francis Phillips, who literally wrote the best-selling book on our industry, which is Nonprofit Kit for Dummies, with her friend. What's your co-author's name? Uh, Stan Hutton. He's Stan. Also, also my husband. Oh, he's your husband. <laughs> well, there you go. I was going to say, too. I was gonna say with, with uh, Stan Hutton, but he doesn't count. He's not here. <laughs> uh, she also works at the Haas Foundation in San Francisco, and she's worked at both, just like Todd, both the funder side of the table and organization side of the table, and then you have me here. So um, what we're trying to do now, and our volunteers are going to help with this, were you all handed out some sticky notes? So just write down any question you would like to ask the burning desires of the, of the 501c3 community, and we will answer them for you. 
<laughs> and maybe even bicker with each other, I hope. I hope, because that will make better radio, because we're doing this for a podcast. So, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping Francis and Sally and I all bicker about something. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> all right, so does anyone have one for me? If you, if you have something ready, just show it like this, and one of our volunteers will come and collect it and bring it up here. Well, I can get that one. All right, so we've got two questions to start with. First of all, what, oh, I love this question. What is a good size board? <laughs> I can't tell you how much that question makes me laugh. <laughs> how about zero? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I would say at least five members, and I think there's a kind of beautiful, happy place at about 11 board members where you have enough people that they could break off into a committee to work mm -hmm. on something specific, and you're not having to draw on every single member to be, well, you can't do this, to be on the audit committee if you do an audit, but, but there's enough people to pass the work around, but not so many that you're spending all of your time trying to get the board together in one place. Yeah, and don't you agree that if boards become too large, they become very unwieldy? And, and another thing is that you have to understand the 80-20 rule applies in boards. The 80-20 rule is that 80% of the work will be done by 20% of the people. That, that is true of most boards, I think. Uh, anybody here will probably, anybody nodding their heads right now? So um, uh, I agree that even though for IRS, I think it requires three, Five is, is definitely probably the minimum you want to have because you got to know that 20% of the people are going to do 80% of the work. So if you have three people, <laughs> then maybe one person is going to work really, really hard. So, um, but yeah, once you get over 12, it can get very unruly. So I agree with her numbers there. I was just going to say something that surprised me in writing the nonprofit kit for dummies yeah. was I always thought you needed three because that's how many you need to form right. an organization. But in California, you actually can have a board of one person. Really? I strongly recommend against it. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually a sign that things are not going well. Probably be, probably would hurt your funding chances and, quite yeah, a bit. If right. You, but, right, Sally? Yeah, but legally you can't. And I will, I will give you the other extreme example. I've worked for an organization that had 100 board members. <laughs> you can't possibly work with 100 board members. And what happened, they only met four times a year, and then on the in-between months, the executive committee of the board, which was about 20 to 25 people who did the majority of the work, met. So somewhere that sweet spot, 15 to 20, yeah. Five minimum, I would say. But 15 to 20 is probably a good number to shoot for. And I forgot to say, your day job, you are the chief fundraiser for Boy Scouts of America in, in Orange, Orange County. County. So I, I would imagine that's a pretty large organization. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, next question. What is the most difficult nonprofit myth to bust? Well, you know, I love this question because that's my podcast. Francis was a, a guest on our first season. We just did our second season, and this conference podcast, whatever comes out of this, will be in our third season. Um, so I, I came up with that title because I feel like there's tons of BS 
and mythology in our sector that is counterproductive that people believe. But for me, I think the one that is the most, I mean, I could take this different ways. I could say the myth that is most fought or the myth that does the most damage. Mm. So I don't know which way to take it, but I think the myth to me that's the most pervasive and maybe one of the most damaging for fundraising is the idea that your fundraiser, your, your big gala event is gonna be the thing that saves you or they're gonna be the most you know, wonderful part of your fundraising. And the, what the reality is, is that it takes a lot of staff time at most organizations that is never calculated in the bottom line and that gala fundraisers often lose money year after year, and then they're said to be friend raisers, and if you actually do the research, you'll find that they don't raise a lot of friends either in terms of people down the line doing more donations. I'm a bigger fan of doing smaller events, and you guys are free to argue with me, but I think uh, events that take one or two board members to produce, or one or two staff or volunteers, or people who are your constituencies that do DIY events, I think are much more productive um, to do many smaller events that don't take a lot of staff time. That's my feeling on it. I, I would tend to agree, with, even though I spent eight years doing galas as my job, <laughs> I tend to agree with you because um, doing the big, big annual event drains energy away from other functions of the exactly. organization, and the organization tends to needs to be um, on task all year round. It needs to keep on top of grant deadlines. It needs to be doing other things as well. That was one of the reasons people hired a consulting firm to do their special event, was right. to try to get it off their backs to some degree. And then I think that people give money to other people whom they trust. So in the context of a smaller event, you have more of that person-to-person -person relationship connection and potentially can raise even more money. You know, that said, sometimes you can get press coverage for a fancy speaker. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes there are benefits to the big ta-da that you can't quite get with a smaller entity. But in terms of general approach, I would agree with you. I, I think fundraisers are great. Big gala fundraisers are great under three circumstances. One, you have a, a, a funder who wants to do it and wants to pay for it. Yeah. Or two, it's been going on for 100 years and it's the thing that defines a town, like the Ashland, Oregon Shakespeare Festival or the Laguna Pageant of the Masters. Those are events that have taken on a life of their own and they, they define an entire town. And they're a major engine of the economy. And then, what was my third one? I forgot my third one. Uh, the third one would be if the board is going to do it without staff help. If it's, a, if it's the kind of event that the board can do on their own as a board event with minimal to no staff uh, mm -hmm. help. Those are the three times I think it's very productive. But I think that's not usually the case. Well, I, 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 I've done a lot of events, and I think you've given a lot of good information. I, I would say another myth, since we were talking about mm -hmm. myths, mm -hmm. is that we, we don't do, we're, we're not, uh, a productive organization. We don't do no. real work in the real world. You actually, I've actually had people say to me, "You get paid for mm -hmm. working at a nonprofit." I said, "Yes." Mm 
that we are a business. We are in the business of whatever it is we're doing, trying to end homelessness or create amazing kids or whatever it is we do, we do real work in the real world and we are viable organizations. Just because we have 501c3, a nonprofit next to us, doesn't minimize or devaluate anything we do or who you are and what you do for the organization. So um, sometimes it's a learning curve, especially if you're going in to corporations and people that really don't know a lot about. I, I would hope by this time a lot of people know about that, but you still run into that. So value who you are, what you do, and who you work for. It's important. And my myth would be close to that, and maybe controversial, because it also has a kind of a political tinge to it, that people who come from private business would do this a lot better. <laughs> yes. But, uh, so let I'd me like to see them run a major corporation with 30% of their workforce being volunteers. Just there are um, values and there are ways of doing the work that are rigorous and profound and that you learn in the nonprofit sector and that don't necessarily carry over from business to the nonprofit sector. That's mine. I think that I think we should do a whole podcast on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> on, on what you said, uh, our very first podcast was on the name nonprofits mm -hmm. and how that gives people this false sense of that we don't really do real work. Um, and we mentioned it this morning in the keynotes, you weren't here for it, no. but we were talking about really getting people to use the word social profit or public benefit or community benefit organizations rather than the term nonprofit. And I don't know if most of you know it, but before 1985, that was not a term. Everyone, we were called charities. And um, charitable organizations, charities, public benefit organizations, Nobody used the word nonprofit. It was this kind of 80s corporatization of our sector, I think, because of what you said, where people thought, oh, you have to be more of a business model. And uh, our boards of trustees became boards of directors. And I really think we should get back to having boards of trustees. I think it's a different way of looking at things. So the difference is a board of directors is a very corporate hierarchical thing. Whereas a board of trustees is that your board is entrusted with a mission and their job is to protect the mission. Their job is not to, um, you know, oversee anything. Of course, they're, they have a fiduciary duty and of course they're going to make sure that the, uh, the CEO is not robbing the place blind and, you know, those kinds of things. But their real job is to protect the mission and all that that means. And I think we really should get back to being trustees with boards. Um, but then to, to your point about, uh, you know, a lot of, I hear a lot of people say, oh, we're, you know, we just hired a new CEO of our Boys and Girls Club or whatever. Uh, he was a businessman, and that's why we know he's going to be great. And they, they you, like 90% of the time, they burn out within one or two years <laughs> because they're not used to running uh, an organization, like you said, with mostly volunteers and that's based on a different bottom line. You know, people forget that we have a bottom line too. It's just not physical profit. Our bottom line is social profit. So what does that mean? Social profit means 
how many people are you serving for the amount of money that you've brought in? Mm -hmm. And I know I sat on a CDBG board here in Fullerton, mm -hmm. and uh, a particular homeless organization, I won't mention which one, um, they, were, they were serving people a meal and a cot, a cot being a yoga mat for the night, for $36 per person per night. I was like, you can go to a Motel 6 and get a free breakfast for that. So I, we gave them money, but we said, you have to lower your cost per service if you want money next year. And they did, they did, they came back and they did that. But they weren't even looking at their cost per service. I did the math based on how many people they served and what their budget was. And so we have to really be cognizant of what it costs us to do a service and make sure it's worth it. They're getting a good bang for their buck. Um, in other parts of the world, they're called NGOs, non-governmental organizations, most in Europe and, and other continents. So in a lot of countries, it's the government and then it's NGOs. And the NGOs do the things that the government maybe can't afford or can't, doesn't, don't have the people or the, the wherewithal to do. Mm -hmm. So it's a little different here, but the same idea. Right. Because I think that we think of um, government benefits are supposed to be very, very broad right. in terms right. of service, whereas a nonprofit or public benefit organization might focus in on a very specific, narrowly defined community of need. Right, mm. right. All right, here's a great question. What percentage of your budget should be spent on marketing? <laughs> I mean, I'm anxious to hear what you two have to say. Well, the, re the reason I'm laughing is what they always say is a brand new or company that starts up spends their first dollars on marketing. And in our sphere of the world, we spend little to no money on marketing. And yet, we want people to know who we are. We want them to know what we do. So my bias is it should be a significant part of your budget. But most organizations don't have that luxury. So what do you do? You work with your board members. You work with the marketing departments of their companies. Have them underwrite ads for you. Have them help from their marketing budgets, which are different than their community support budgets. And that's one workaround. But it, it needs to be a significant part of what you do because if nobody knows who you are and what you do, you're not gonna make the difference that your mission says you wanna make. And you know, there was, I had to be brought around to, I mean, I'm gonna speak from a foundation. It's like, if people think you're giving money away, why do you need to market? Like, people are gonna find you. It's not as if you're going to remain obscure. Um, you can make your information perhaps more or less difficult for people to find. But I have come around to think that foundations should spend money on marketing and communications, and there are two reasons for it. And this is really off the top of my head. I would say the Walter and Elise Haas Fund spends a pretty small portion of money specifically on marketing and communications, maybe $150,000 a year out of a $2 million operating budget that doesn't count about 12 million in grants that we make. Um, 
there, and it's partly so small because marketing and communications is part of everybody's job. So I'm not trying to count that. I'm just talking like, what does the web guy gets paid and what, but over time I've come to realize that if I'm enthusiastic about certain organizations or an arena of work, I, the Walter and Elise Haas Fund's imprimatur on an organization and its work can attract other grant makers to that same organization or that same realm of work. Um, we've done a lot of podcasts and uh, blogs and so on about the continuing disparity between what women earn and what men earn. We all think that back in the 1970s, my wave of feminism that we solved that. Back when it used to be 47 cents to a dollar, women to men, now it's more like 72 cents per dollar. But um, what we haven't, and it's much more significant for low-income individuals than it is for people who are middle or upper income, that gap. So we have spent a fair investment in marketing and communications on that. So in any event, you may think that because it's your work to do good and your work to spend your resources on the cots and hot meals, that that's enough. But in fact, you also, I do think there's considerable value to telling your story. When Todd spoke this morning, he was talking about one of his three things everybody should do is tell your story well. And that's what marketing is, is telling your story well. Whether it's an e-blast, whether it's on a website, whether it's um, you know something that you give out to your constituents. So for me, I always tell people when I'm coaching or consulting, it should be five to ten percent of your budget. And I always feel like um, small organizations make a mistake when they save up their money and then they hire a professional fundraiser to join the team. I think if you're a small organization and you do that, you're kind of setting that person up to fail and you're setting yourselves up to fail because a fundraiser can only raise funds based on relationships that are created. And first, you really need to get the organization known. So I think the first money spent before you spend it on a fundraiser should be spent on marketing because like she said, in corporate world, the first thing they do is spend money on marketing to find out, for people to find out who you are. So um, for me, I think that should go first. Does anybody have any, no, no controversy here? I'm hoping to get some controversy I know, going. I can just feel how hard we're that all, is. We're all so How nice. hard that <laughs> is on the inside of a small organization to think, oh, yeah. I have to spend money on bragging about us, you know, yes. when we're just yeah. barely got our feet on the ground. No, but, but you're a funder. I'm how a are funder. you going to find out about what they're doing if they're not, if they don't have a nice website and they mm -hmm. don't have mm -hmm. e-blasts that tell their story to the funders that are funding them and also to the participants they want to get because you have to get people to use your program and that can be hard for some organizations. Mm -hmm. So I think it's Just important. Just for a new organization, wouldn't they need to have success story to be able to advertise? You're supposed to write it down. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're All jumping right. the line here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. For uh, Sorry, I'm just giving you a hard time. Yeah, a new organization, what do they need to what? I mean, wouldn't they have to have a success story to be able to advertise and say, here's what we've done and here's what oh. they should be doing? Uh, you know, I think they have to have passion. Yeah, okay. They have to build mm -hmm. passion for their cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, let, let me give you an example of this, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I feel passionate about this question because um, 
let's say that there's a historic home in your community and they're gonna go to the wrecking ball. And some people are just, you know, it's a, it's a Queen Anne and people are just sick about it. And they start sending out and then people chain themselves to it and they save the house. Well, what's the next step? The city's gonna say, well, who's gonna run it? You're gonna, we'll save the house, but somebody has to run it. So they're gonna make it a house museum. So now you have a new nonprofit that you have to start. I'm sorry, a new community benefit organization. <laughs> you have to start to run this thing, right? And if the same people who were passionate about saving it, then have to be just as passionate about keeping it. And so that's your website right there. It's not about your success, it's about why this is important. It's about the why, like Simon Sinek says, yes. like Todd was talking about this morning. It's about mm -hmm. the why. Mm -hmm. Anybody wanna? No, I would agree with you. Yeah. I think if you can get the passion of the founding idea out there, that, that can be a good thing. I also have seen some small newish organizations have a Facebook page, keep it pretty simple, but have a place for people to go to find them. And learn yeah, about you have them. to these days you have to have some kind of an online presence yeah. that's where people go and it I mean it can be as simple a thing as doing a two-minute video with a phone and having somebody that can tweak it a little bit and get it out on social media create a Facebook page do those kinds of things then you can build a website but you need to tell people you need to talk about your site you need to build the passion build the interest build the um, marketing yeah. platform basically okay new question where is the best resource to find local funders and and i could answer this if you all mm -hmm. don't have one prepared well i have a question for you zoot okay <laughs> <laughs> which is now that you have this position here yes. do you have the ability to get the library to um, subscribe to the foundation directory online as a resource that students would have access to. Okay, good. We're going to have a fight. I love this. This is great. <laughs> okay. I personally uh -huh. do not find it to be a great resource. Uh -huh. And I'll tell you why. Because, uh, and maybe it's changed because honestly I haven't gone to it in a number of years mm -hmm. and maybe it's a better resource than it used to be. Okay. But it used to be so hard to find what you were looking for in it, mm -hmm. whereas it's so much easier to Google what you need and find things online. Mm -hmm. So if that's changed, I'd like to know that. Okay. But for me, for me, I find the best place to find local resources is to do a resource map, which is what I do. And I do that with guidestar.org. Oh. So I go to guidestar.org, guidestar.org. It's a free resource. You have to set up an account. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. And you can look up any organization in America. You can look at their 990s. You can see how much their CEO makes. You can see everything you need to know about them uh, on Guidestar. And what I do is I put in the zip code or the city, and I put in the size budget that I'm looking for, and I can find out who are good potential strategic partners, who are good funders. All of them are lo lo located on Guidestar. And um, it gives me a, a pretty good idea of who's in the neighborhood. And then I like to actually go open Google Maps and map them. So I can see exactly where they are. And what I, I did that one day in Long Beach. I was running a place in Long Beach. And I found something kind of startling 
that I would never have known if I hadn't mapped them. There's a, a place in Long Beach that runs uh, on the LA Strip, which is the, the part that runs along the 710 freeway, and there's cities on both sides, and it's just this little strip of land that's about maybe 30 blocks wide. And that strip had absolutely no resources, none, nothing. And I would never have known that if I hadn't done the resource map. And then that told me there's an area that needs help. So if, if I was running something in Long Beach that could help that area, I knew exactly where, where there was a, a desert of resources. Hmm. I think that I, I think that's a great story. I do feel as if you've thrown down the gauntlet for me to try Good. to Good, let's, let's do it. Let's get into it. <laughs> the foundation directory online. First of all, encourage you to go take another look at it. I feel as if they have merged their data about, I, you know, one of the things I think is so confounding about doing foundation research is that they say they do something, and then when you look at the grants they made, the grants don't look to you quite like what they have described. And there can be some good reasons for that, that sometimes they've changed guidelines, or sometimes it's a question of your learning how to interpret what they're thinking of. Our foundation's mission is to build a healthy, just, and vibrant society. Now, how many in the room are not doing that? I bet you all are. So you could only really figure out how we think about it by looking at an actual grants list. So what I like about the Foundation Directory Online is that you can look at their description of their intention and what they've actually done all in one place. And it is a bit more nimble than it used to be in that there is something that foundations can choose to be part of called an H grant. And what that means is every time we make a grant and we post it on our website, it goes to the foundation directory. Mm -hmm. So it's not getting there after they got our 990, a year and a half after its news. So the I do believe the materials is fresh. There's a lag with the now, I really admire what you just described about your research process. So I'm not I'm not taking you on on that one. But where I think the foundation directory can be helpful is perhaps you have identified the two or three likeliest resources for your organization, but now you need some more ideas. And so now you need to get a, a kind of develop a broader list and then to dig down deeper with GuideStar web pages, websites of foundations, et cetera, to figure out of, you know, okay, now I've got 25 prospects. I really know that they're not all gonna be good, so I'm gonna go look at them. Uh, and then my final word is, I think only 15% of foundations have websites. So don't limit your research to That's that. That's true. Well, and, and if, you, if you find people on GuideStar and then you look and they don't have a website, that the addresses will be on GuideStar. I always send them a letter and saying, this is what we do. I found you on GuideStar. I don't know what you do, but if it's something that aligns, I would love to have lunch with you and for you to see. And I find that to be, I'll tell you what turned me off of Foundation Centers. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, when I first went to it, it was like walking into Harry Potter's library, you know, <laughs> like at Hogwarts. This is like, you know, this, this giant library of, of stuff. And it was a little overwhelming. And then trying to find, uh, so I did, I did a lot of research. It took me weeks to find the right places that would fund the kind of things we were doing in the area we were doing it, the size we were doing it. 
it was because back then there was no way to you know whittle it down easily on Google, and so I would get it all you know weeks to get it all, and I send out tons of letters. I got no response, nothing, you know, and it is to be honest, and you know you can argue with me about this too, but it is a who you know kind of industry funding yes. funding and funders, um, and funders trust other funders, and. Why, uh, one thing that I think is the best thing you can do if you are a small organization you've never got any funding is do a site visit with the community foundation. Because when the community foundation comes and they see what you're doing and if they are impressed with it, they will tell other funders because they're the hub of the wheel and all the other funders have relationships with them. Not all, there are some funders that don't and I know funders that don't, but most of them are, are related to them through the funders roundtable and other things. And the word will get out about you if you make a, a mark with the foundation, with the community foundation. Mm -hmm. I think that's really great. And may I, ins I just want to insert a little bit of information and then we can listen to you because you probably have a better answer to the question. But just that the Foundation Center's main office is in New York. They have five libraries in different parts of the country. I'm lucky because one of them happens to be in San Francisco, but they also have what they call cooperating collections. Some of them are at community foundations, some of them are at colleges and universities, and you can go to those organizations that subscribe to their resources and use the resources for free. You can also buy them, but they're expensive. So I recommend finding it for free. Okay, we have Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to piggyback on what Suit said. I, I don't know if you caught that. He said, I'll call him and take him out to lunch. The best resource is the person. People give to people. You can read foundations, and Zoot said this. He said, hundreds of letters out. Foundations aren't the only source of getting money or getting product or getting things that you might be able to use in your organization. It isn't always money you get. Sometimes people want to donate goods and services, and that can be very helpful too. But it's, it's this. It's having a conversation with somebody and letting them see your passion, letting them find out who you are. They get excited about what you're doing. They may want to be part of your organization. And this is where your board members can help you out in the community. Because if they have that spark, if they can be ambassadors for you, they can open doors that you can't open and introduce you to the people and the resources that you need. Just a different avenue. Is it a question on this topic? Because we only have 10 minutes left. Go ahead. I'm not going to cheat and get in front. Go fast. Uh, since <laughs> like, you're talking about uh, grant resources, could you briefly talk about grant hiring a grant writer? If you're a small organization and you talked about relationships, Grant writers are supposed to have relationships. They know how to do that kind of thing or where to go. What's your thought on that? Sally? I would outsource it. If you're a small organization, you probably can't afford a full-time employee that does nothing but write grants. There's a lot of people. Um, Scott Evans, stand up. Scott is a oh, part-time grant writer. He was actually supposed to be up here, but I'm pitching for him. Um, there are a lot of people who have been doing this a long time, and we have a great list of grant writers in our AFP organization. Um, and they can help you, they're really in tune with what's going on in the community, and they can help you find the right organizations to write grants for, but I would outsource it. 
if, if you're a small organization. It's, it's hard to justify a full-time employee that does nothing but write grants. Um, so what she says is right. And if you hire a professional grant writer, they're going to know where many of the grants are. They're going to know which ones are right for you and will save you a lot of time and pigeonholing. What, you know, I think it's more important to hire a grant writer for what they know about grants than actually the writing of it, you know, because the, it's a lot of it is, you know, I told somebody once I had an 80% success rate on grants. That's because I don't write a lot of grants that I know I'm not going to get. You know, I, I've already figured out which grants I'm best qualified for and that I'm going to be competitive for. And that's what a grant writer will do. But if you have zero money and you can't afford to hide a grant writer, the best person to write a grant is a program person because a grant is nothing more than a program design. So I will ask the program people to design the program and then I'll get an intern or somebody who is a journalism person to do the actual fine wordsmithing of the grant because the best grants read like a magazine article. They're journalistic in nature. You want to start in the middle when it's exciting and then work backwards to all the details so that you really grab their interest. Because remember, I've sat on 29 grant panels in my life. And when you sit on a grant panel, you're reviewing like 50 grants at one time, sometimes less, but a lot. And you, you're reading the same narrative over and over again 50 times. You're looking for something to be interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and, and you, most people think interesting means lots of details and flowery. That's not what interesting is. Interesting is not world peace and you know too little detail or too much detail. Interesting is about the passion, feeling the passion of the people speaking through the grant. I would, I would agree with that. And I also would say don't underestimate your own ability to do it well. If I had, if a grant writer were willing to work with me at a small organization in this way, I would want their coaching and guidance about who to talk to, who my priorities should be, and that would ultimately be more useful than the writing. That sometimes the worst proposals I get are from very large budget institutions that have. Um, excellent people who are sort of often in ivory tower who are only writing grants, but they don't have that kind of grit and passion in them, and they're less interesting. Okay, we're going to do a lightning round okay. now because we are five minutes left. Okay. Okay. Um, this is an easy one. Is grant funding limited by counties? No. There's federal grants, there's state grants, there's county grants, there's foundation grants that go across county lines. There's no limit to the kinds of funding that's out there. Um, okay, when do you know that, it, that the executive director needs to go? <laughs> when do you know that the executive director needs to go? Wow, if you're asking that question, that's when you know. That's when you know. Yeah. If you're worried about it. All right, so I, I have a philosophy about this, and you all can argue with me about this. That would be great. Good, good radio. Um, my philosophy is that there's a reason why two term limits for president are in the Constitution, you know, uh, eight eight year term. I think eight years is a perfect amount of time to be somewhere because it really takes at least five years to really change an organization. Um, you know, if you do a three-year plan, you're going to make a lot of changes, and then things are going to be moving in the right direction. It may take another three-year plan before that goes to fruition. 
So it takes five or six years to really change an organization. And then, you know, at that point, you start to kind of rest on your laurels a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think eight years, eight to nine, 10 years is like maximum. People who are there for 15, 20 years may still be doing a great job, but I do think it kind of maybe can, in many cases, rob a place from being able to go to a different level with a new director as a different mm -hmm. vision. So that's just me, that's my philosophy. I don't think there's anything wrong with people. I mean, I know great directors have been there 20 years, 25 years, and they do a great job and their organizations are great. I just don't think they've ever gotten beyond that initial six year level because that's kind of as far as the director could take them with what they had. They need new ideas at that point. One thing I, I would agree, I wouldn't say there's a hard and fast rule for a number of years, but I've witnessed a number of organizations where a founder or early staff is great for a few years because they have the concept and the passion, but once the organization is mature enough to need to be managed, mm -hmm. that person is not right no, for that job that they didn't they didn't get into this to hire and fire employees and oversee systems and you know and so that's where I often feel as if the ED needs to go and it's often at about year four or five um, and it's, of course it's painful because it's their baby they don't want to let it go but it's very painful <laughs> I've seen that a number of times yeah the, the, the ED and the CEO don't leave when they Yes. When they need to. And then, you know, somebody had a question about turnover. Why is there so much turnover? And, you know, I think for, I think nationally for a CEO in our field, it's about three years. For a fundraiser, it's about 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I have different ideas of why that is the case. But I think part of it is because if someone is really successful, they get poached. And if it's not, uh, if it's not, something they invented, it's not they weren't the founder of it, excuse me, then it's really easy for them to get poached by another organization. So um, I think organizational boards can do a better job of working with their CEOs because I think most times when the CEO leaves, it's because of board issues. Mm -hmm. um, Often. I, I think, Often. yeah, not, not all the time, not but, always, all, yeah. but, but probably mm -hmm. the majority of the time. Um, and it's like any why does anyone leave any job if they usually it's because they feel a lack of respect well so. I, I, I think it's hard in the fund development world because after about 18 months or two years maybe you've done all the events you want to do and you want to you want to do something a little more meaty or you want to you want to broaden your your base and often there's not a position for you mm -hmm. an organization is lucky to have a fundraiser, sometimes two or three, but not often. It's just the, the bigger, what we call shops, bigger shops like hospitals and universities that have maybe that opportunity for you to advance and to, to do other kinds of things. But if you're just doing, you know, basic fundraising, it's, it's hard. You get burned out really quickly because a lot of fundraising falls upon staff. As good as your volunteers are, it's kind of, you know, incumbent upon you to make sure that the event happens, that the grant gets written, that, that whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, so it's it's a lot of stress, and it's not, you're never going to make the kind of money you make in the, 
you know, in the, in the for-profit world mm -hmm. or the commercial world. So it, you have to love the organization you work for. You have to find, because you are out there representing it every day just as much as your volunteers are. So I think that happens too. Sometimes people think they want to work with animals and maybe they don't really. Maybe they'd rather work in the senior center, you know, area. So you have, you have, you as a fundraiser have to find your passion or you can't fundraise for an organization. So I think that comes into play too. Did you want to comment? Uh, I would just say I, a bad reason for it is that unreasonable expectations yeah. get placed on the development person and they mm. don't, so that they don't feel successful in the job or they don't feel that they, you know, are being appreciated. The, on the positive side of the turnover is that there are some people who are great grant writer development people and they just are curious and interested in a lot of things and they want to learn a new subject in a deep mm -hmm. way. And so they're compelled to kind of keep growing professionally keep growing. by the tools don't change, but the content and the context do. Yeah, I think a really good uh, fundraiser, someone whose job it is to be fundraising, um, part of their job is making everyone else on the staff a fundraiser, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that happens from both ends of the table is that they're unappreciated because they're not doing what they what the organization thought they were going to do because there was maybe too high expectations and then from the fundraiser side they're not doing uh well because they're they didn't get everyone in the office involved in fundraising so it kind of comes from both sides i think all right well that is it for this panel we have to break and you have a few more minutes uh, at 2.30. The next session will start back down in the same classroom that you were at with the same track you were at this morning. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoo Velasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by... The Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.